This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matt Splained. Silence. It's one of those stranger things that make us feel calm in one circumstance and unsettled in another. It can be companionable or make you feel entirely isolated. Matt Armitage wants to know if silence can bring us together. Me, I disconnect from you. Thanks, Rich. Um, this is part of my ongoing mission to make Richard read out obscure and uh, ancient song lyrics on air. Uh, that was the title of a Gary Newman track from 1979, because, you know, of course it was. Um, it's not quite as uh, random and uh, self-indulgent as it sounds. You know, the ideas of transmutation, these hybrid human machines, our robot overlords and questioning where technology is taking us. You know, all of these things we assume are new because the technology surrounding us is new. Mm. And we assume as well that ours will be the first generation who experienced the existential dread of this new technology. But the opposite of true, uh, the opposite is true rather. You know, throughout human history, we've questioned the role that technology plays in it from mm -hmm millennia before the Luddites ever bothered to oppose mechanization, uh, the mechanization that was creating the Industrial Revolution, all the way through to the sci-fi movies and the TV series of the early 20th century. I mean, think about something like 1920s uh, movie Metropolis rather than yeah. something like Star Trek. Yeah. You know, and as synth pop and rock developed in the 1970s, you started to see this kind of utopian versus dystopian divide between some of the artists as well. Mm -hmm. You know, broadly in terms of that, that electronic music, you had craft work on one side, the utopian side, the, uh, the ideal was to become like a machine. And then you had people like Gary Newman on the other. So when you go to records like Newman's Replicas, The Pleasure Principle and Telecon, you find a lot of the subjects that we talk about on the show, these ideas of alienation, surveillance, capitalism, and dependence. Me? I disconnect from you? Well, the arch joke would be to have you say nothing except that phrase for the rest of the show. Um, you know, it would demonstrate the encroaching influence of technology, how external forces shape our actions, and that increasingly our thoughts and some of our actions are not our own. Um, but on the basis that it would be both cruel and boring, uh, yeah, mainly the boring part, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not actually going to do that. Um Gary Newman's song was about alienation and isolation, but increasingly we're told to disconnect our physical selves from the digital world. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about neuroscientists concerned that digital technology is reshaping our brains. Uh, we talked mm -hmm. about the cortical thinning that's being discovered at younger ages, uh, particularly amongst heavy users of technology. So we know that putting these cutoffs in place can be beneficial and that regular self-imposed screen-free moments, even ones that last just a few minutes, can improve our mood and our state of mind. 
and help to regulate the effects that those devices have on the stress-related chemical production in our bodies. So we're not really looking at how much disconnection or isolation is good for us, or, or the reverse case, how much disconnection might be harmful. Well, if we go back into this show's distant past, um, we've often talked about that Gary Newman-style approach, the uh, that technology itself you know, creates or generates isolation. Yeah. Uh, before we all disappeared into the 19th dimension of COVID, we often spoke about the, uh, spoke about the mukbang trend, mm-hmm. um, which came up in South Korea. So the idea was that uh, solitary South Koreans, rather than eat on their own, would watch videos of other people eating as a way to mitigate some of that isolation. Now, mm. I've I've always eaten alone ever since I was a kid. I mean, I, I don't really understand the social significance that people place around eating together. I find it's easier to talk to people when they're not shoveling food into their mouths. So, <laughs> you know, clearly there are a lot of um, competing factors here. We have that, that concept of technology-induced isolation. And the converse of that is what we experience during that 19th dimension, the Mm. technology connected us to people that we weren't physically able to Mm. to visit for whatever period of time. Um, Then we have these issues around the compulsion to use technology, to doom scroll, and of course, that anxiety-inducing dependence that can come with that kind of behavior. At the other extreme, uh, there are experts suggesting that we should disconnect more to make ourselves happy. And as you mentioned, you know, we don't necessarily look too deeply at what the idea of disconnecting more, you know, what that actually means. Em- embracing silence, perhaps. Well, the, the thing is, it's never actually that simple. So a couple of episodes back, we were talking about smart cities and the benefit of green and blue spaces. So we yeah. looked at the idea that spending time in parks and nature, you know, that's a good thing. It's good for you. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of progressive urban planners and developers are wrapping new streets and buildings in greenery. They're creating all of these... Uh, urban spaces that act as this kind of environmental release valve, Um, you know, these very kind of leafy environments. Mm -hmm. So time spent in green spaces, we know that's good for you. Uh, Spending time around water is good for you. And of course, what is the most good for you is spending time around water in nature. So it's the same deal when we talk about disconnecting and when we talk about embracing silence, some people disconnect by, you know, going to those places where you can smash up old TVs and furniture. That's their release valve. But there isn't a lot of silence there. You know, ditto a, a club or bar. You can go there to disconnect and to, you know, to to immerse yourself in something else. But it's not necessarily silent. So mm. do, do you kind of get what I mean? I, I do. Uh, you know, for me, having some kind of um, background noise, you know, and and a hubbub happening around me is is kind of my sense of silence sometimes, you know, because it's something I don't necessarily have to focus on, but I, I know it, there's comfort in that noise somewhat. Yeah, and I think that's kind of... The, the the larger point to this as well, um, you have to find that kind of tranquility that, mm. as you said, you know, you feel comfortable with. Um, we've 
found as well that, you know, that things like the wrong kind of silence can be harmful. I've been uh, fascinated by the idea of anechoic chambers for years. Now, these big fancy words just mean non-reflecting because, you know, we forget that sound travels in waves. So an anechoic chamber is something that doesn't allow the sound to travel in waves. (laughs) But because sound travels in waves, it's directional. It bounces off surfaces. For example, when you walk along a a busy road flanked by skyscrapers on both sides, you get that feeling of being overwhelmed by the noise. It's all around you. And it's hard to pinpoint where those individual sounds are actually coming from. Because the sound waves are bouncing around and they reflect off all of those steel and glass structures. So it just becomes this cacophony of noise. As I said, anechoic chambers are designed to prevent those reflections. And before you start thinking that, oh, you know, this is just soundproofing. No, it's a a very different concept. Mm. A a soundproofed room, um, which both Richard and I have both kind of tried to achieve in the places we're currently recording, A soundproofed room has all kinds of reflections. Uh, Recording studios, concert halls, even clubs are often built to create certain sound patterns within them. They're deliberately structured to create certain reflections. But they may use soundproofing to prevent noise leaking outside. Or in the case of clubs and concert venues, it might be because there are local residents and it's just to reduce noise pollution. Mm-hmm. But in recording studios, you want these pristine environments where sound can't leak from a studio to the control room, say, or from one sound stage to another, and especially noise from the outside world coming into those environments. So anechoic chambers limit the noise within them rather than isolating the sound from people outside them. Yeah, and that might sound like a weird reason to exist. Um, But chamber here is the right phrase. These things are created. Often there's a a suspended mesh floor that the person inside walks around on. And there are special sound absorbing waffles on every surface, even under the mesh floor, to try and bring those reflections as close to point zero as is possible. Uh, But despite their complexity and cost, you know, think about all the soundproofing you need to stop, uh, just to stop noise coming into the chamber from outside. These things are actually more common than we think. uh, And there are plenty of reasons to create them. Mm. Uh, It might be academic and research institutes who are researching noise and the impacts of noise. It could be behaviorists who are looking at sensory deprivation. But commercially, a lot of computer and electrical companies have them as well, because they're very useful, for example, to companies that make uh, microphones and amplifiers so that they can actually test the, the noise floor and sensitivity of those devices. Ah, uh, you're steering me towards guitar YouTube, aren't you? That's where you're going with this. Well, a, a little bit. Um, one of my favorite examples of uh, using an anechoic chamber um, is by Ola England, who is a, a Swedish metal YouTuber. Uh, he filmed a great video of himself playing guitar inside one of these chambers, one that's owned by the Japanese music company Boss, and he did that in Tokyo. But it's really instructive to see how the sound changes as he moves around the room recording his own guitar. Mm -hmm. Unless he stands directly in front of the amplifier, there's almost no sound. I mean, when Mm -hmm. he walks just to the side of the amplifier, he hears almost nothing. And Mm -hmm. when he turns the face of the microphone to the wall, 
away from the microphone, there's no sound being recorded at all. Which is interesting because... Well, as creatures, we're not designed for silence. And that's kind of the point of today's episode. Um, How long do you think you would last inside an anechoic chamber? I can tell you probably not very long. And the reason I say that is because when I went back to the UK, uh, to my home village, which is almost silent, and I could hear (laughs) literally my own thoughts and my tinnitus and everything else, that alone um, made me feel anxious. Yeah, and and that's kind of the point. I mean, I've got that tinnitus issue as well. So Mm. if I go into quiet environments, I have that issue of being deafened by my own senses. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think I'd last very well either. Uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that the world record for staying inside an anechoic chamber is only one hour and seven minutes. And really? Yeah, I mean, it's that short. And that was created by a writer for the uh, Unilad news platform, I think back in about 2016. So it really isn't a long time. And that comes back to that idea of the quality of the silence. Inside one of these chambers, you know, there are none of those external stimuli that fill our mm-hmm. ears. As you said, when you you went home and the, you know, you're suddenly assaulted by the quiet because you can hear yourself. Yeah. Uh, in one of these chambers, you can hear your heartbeat. Some people even hear the noise of their own blood moving through the carotid artery. So it's very disconcerting. Um, Others have been completely overwhelmed and deafened by conditions like tinnitus. And Mm. as well, sometimes these experiments are done in the chambers in the dark. If they're in the chamber in the dark, often after a few minutes, your eyes start to create colors. After about half an hour, some people experience hallucinations. And quite a lot of people only last literally a few seconds. They run out after only, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 seconds. In a real sense, me, I disconnect from you. Yeah, I mean, dislocated even. You know, as I said, we're not (laughs) designed for silence. Uh, We'll have to get into it after the break. But the idea here is to look at what the research is saying about the kind of silence, the quality of the silence, and mm. the kind of peace that benefits us as individuals. Uh, it could be meditation, for example. It could be flotation tanks. It could be sitting in a quiet room without a digital device, without a screen, or just gazing at a rock pool. Enough of that, Matt. We had enough of hippie Matt last time. Let, let's move on. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to get too wistful. It's not just about what types of silence or tranquility are good for us, but also how much of them is good for us. Hence the example of those anechoic chambers. If you're hallucinating after half an hour, that might not be the kind of environment you want to pop into just before you've got a big presentation to give. Um, (laughs) Whereas, you know, it might be beneficial to go off and do five minutes of guided meditation. Mm. Um, By the way, my new mindfulness series, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, 
is now available as an audio-enabled NFT. Uh, it's a new concept. I'm blending mindfulness and despair. Um, there are only two copies still available. Richard already has one, uh, but that's mainly because I have the password to his crypto wallet. Uh, you can buy your copy while we head for a break. Uh, we'll be back once I've Googled larceny and called the police. Uh, I believe Matt is taking a quiet moment to consider his defense. Uh, yeah, We'll be back right after these messages here on Matt Splain on BFM 89.9. Blues, folk, metal. BFM 89.9. FM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. We're back. And with the police report lodged and a useless NFT in my wallet, it's time to listen to some silence. Now, I thought of playing a clip of some white noise there, but then I realized that silence itself is a, a better option. And I'm wondering how that made everybody feel i'm guessing it didn't make them feel peaceful or relaxed because silence out of context can be unsettling uncomfortable even frightening you know look at the way silence is used in horror movies you have a silent moment and seconds later you'll get a jump scare usually with a, a really enormous increase in volume the silence is used to kind of flatten the screen experience and create a moment of uh, tension and create you know this sense of cons uh, confusion and dislocation yeah and do you think that's because um in a evolutionary sense we're not built for silence yeah i mean we touched on this just before the break so this is where this episode kind of goes hand in hand with the smart city episode because you're right we are evolutionarily attuned to noise we're attuned to the noises of uh, our prey and to our predators the noises that allowed uh, us to hunt and to outwit our own hunters mm -hmm. uh, the noises of incoming weather or approaching natural disaster and i don't just mean you know volcanoes and earthquakes i mean nature's more mundane disasters like a boulder tumbling down, uh, you know, a, a rock face or a coconut mm. falling from a tree above you. Uh, and also we have these physical chemical reactions that accompany these noises. These are the things that prepare our body for what happens next. So all those fight or flight circuits are activated. We become more alert. Blood gets pumped to the muscles. Our brain is flooded with chemicals. And because we live today in these noisy and often urban environments, those triggers can often, you know, can be going off frequently throughout the yeah. day. And that can, of course, harm our health. Uh, for example, we spoke recently about the way that mobile devices are designed to, you know, physically interrupt us. They ping, mm -hmm. they flash, they interrupt our thoughts to grab our attention. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but 
I always have my phone set to silent. I mean, I never have any noises coming from my phone because I find the constant pinging for notifications. It's simply too distracting. Yeah, I I have the same thing. Uh, I think most of us are aware of the damage that noise can do in terms of those biological harms. Um, But what are the scientific benefits of silence? Well, again, you know, many thanks to the new scientists for doing the hard work of putting evidence together so that I can just compile it all for this show. Uh, (laughs) Check out an article called The Power of Quiet by uh, Kate Sukal, which expands on what we're discussing today and details very interestingly the writer's own experience in trying to find the right kind of silence for her. It still feels weird to hear a phrase like the right kind of silence. I know. Um, but, you know, as, as we pointed out when we talked about anechoic chambers in the first part of the show, some forms of silence are too extreme for some people. Like you said, you felt anxiety when you went to the rural setting that you were brought up in. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the right kind of silence can help to nudge us into this kind of more relaxed or meditative state of mind. And we already know that that these can create a host of benefits, you know, reduction in stress, all the way up to things like relief from chronic pain. Uh, the new scientist uses the example of research by Eric Pfeiffer and his colleagues at Germany's Catholic University of Applied Sciences, where they actually compared different kinds of silent experiences. Uh, One famous example or experiment they replicated was uh, a series of experiments uh, carried out by researchers at the University of Virginia. I think that was back in 2014. These suggested that people would prefer to give themselves a painful electric shock rather than be left alone in silence with their own thoughts. Um, (laughs) Now, at the time, people found that was, you know, obviously quite an extreme response. Mm. Pfeiffer's team actually found the opposite when they replicated the experiments five years later in 2019. They found that the subjects welcomed the experience and they felt positive about being removed from a phone, a screen or a laptop. Um, Is that mostly an issue of uh, replicability? Well, I mean, that's something we've touched on uh, in the shows in the past. You know, a lot of experiments are hard to replicate. Uh, Results, yeah, they can vary enormously. And that seems to be particularly the case with experiments in the social scientists, uh, social sciences rather. But both Pfeiffer and new scientists caution that these results don't negate or necessarily even contradict that study in 2014. Mm. Pfeiffer makes the point that we now know a lot more about the benefits of unplugging, just as we're more aware of the harm that the devices actually bring along with them. And they make the further point that the subjects used in the experiments could have been in very different states of mind. Mm -hmm. He points out that for someone who's already in that kind of stress-filled state of mind, plunging them into a silent environment is not likely to benefit them. You know, that idea of being alone with your thoughts doesn't help if you're actively engaged in trying to escape from your thoughts. What are the, um, what are some of the other forms of silence that Pfeiffer and um, his team um, compared? Well, uh, according to New Scientists, they experimented with 15-minute periods of silence in a variety of different settings. So sometimes they were solitary, others uh, they were within a group. Uh, Some sessions were done inside, some sessions were done outside. There Mm -hmm. were guided sessions, unsupervised sessions. 
Uh, there were some where relaxing music was played at times. There were others where there was no music at all. And while they found that the majority of sessions were of at least some benefit to the subjects, the ones that were most beneficial seemed to be guided sessions in a natural setting like a park, along with intermittent relaxing music or meditation. And that doesn't seem very practical for most of us. Well, that's actually a really good point in and of itself. And I'll get to that in a moment. You know, Pfeiffer's team makes the point that all of those, you know, experiences of silence were beneficial. So it is really about finding the ones that are workable for you. Um, mm. my, my own experience with doing things like mindfulness meditation, it hasn't been great. You know, I, I find it very hard to get into that relaxed state even with guided sessions from apps. Uh, I guess maybe there's a difference if your guided session is actually someone physically being there and guiding you. Yeah, maybe. And, yeah, and, you know, helping to correct your physical responses, reacting to your physical responses as they occur. But that brings us to another, well, kind of a central point in this discussion, which is the cost of silence. You know, is silence price sensitive? Is it most readily available to those with the most resources? And one of the reasons I bring this up is because the places we live in are becoming noisier. According to the World Health Organization, many cities now far exceed the recommended 40 decibel limit of background noise uh, at night. Okay. Um for people at home who might not be familiar with uh, sound levels in decibels, give us some examples that they might be able to um, compare it with. Yeah. Now, I know you're very familiar with decibel levels, but yeah, for, for other people, um, we we have to remember that even when we talk about decibel levels, not all sounds are equal. Um so the example I can give for that is a police siren that clocks in usually at around 110 decibels to 120 decibels. Mm -hmm. Now, that's very, very loud, but it's not just loud. It's also an intermittent sound. So remember, we used that example of silence in horror movies to create a pause for the next increase in value, uh, in mm -hmm. volume. Um, so... Good examples of that are the classic orchestral stabs in the movie Psycho, the EE -E that mirrored the, the yep. stabbing of the knife, um, just in the same way that the da-da, da-da in Jaws is also an example. So the I'm so glad you did the noises. I'm so glad. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so the emergency vehicle siren is designed to penetrate your hearing, um, to fluctuate and to create attention. So it's not just loud. It's, it's kind of modulating to, to mm. get mm. through that, that noise. Um, but you might find the noise of a lawnmower or leaf blower is much more annoying and intrusive than a siren, even though they're much quieter. I mean, they're still loud, but they're much quieter than a siren at about 90 decibels because they have that constant drone and they can continue for extended periods. I mean, you know, most of us want to... Uh, pushed almost to physical violence if somebody is drilling in the house next door for too long. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it's not necessarily that loud a sound. Uh, New Scientist uses the example of the rustling of leaves at about 20 decibels. That's a sound that many of us might found, uh, find relaxing. Conversation in a restaurant is routinely around 60 decibels. That's loud. Uh, anything above uh, 85 decibels for an extended period of time, something you know like a leaf blower or a lawnmower, 
can lead to hearing loss, mm -hmm. while uh, long-term exposure to noises above 50 decibels has been linked to health issues ranging from sleep disruption to cardiovascular concerns. But I think the most instructive example I can give is probably the dripping tap. The World Health Organization recommends that limit of 40 decibels for noise at night. Well, a dripping tap is roughly 40 decibels. And that's one of the most annoying sounds known to humankind. I currently have one in my kitchen sink. Anyway, where does but the, the... But the thing is, okay, just to digress for a second, it drips in your kitchen sink, but how far away and what other rooms of the house can you still hear it? Um, it's far enough away that I'm aware of it. Uh, I, I, I can very faintly hear it. But when I'm in the, the living room, which is adjacent to the kitchen, I, I can hear it, yeah. Anyway, um, where does the issue of wealth come in then? It, um, is a dripping tap really any less annoying if you're wealthy? <laughs> well, it's probably even more so because you're more likely to be living in an environment that's already fairly silent. So it's going right. to be more intrusive. You may be living in a residential enclave that's far from um, through traffic, mm -hmm. um, a long way away from highways or train lines and all the noise of a commercial city. For someone living in a, a simple apartment next to a rumbling highway, that dripping tap might not even figure in yeah. that amount of background noise. If you're in a high-end inner city apartment, you're likely to have the kind of thick glazing on your windows that blocks the noise of the train line below your window. You have the kind of thick walls or soundproofing that isolates you from the noises of neighbors, not just to your side, but the neighbors above and below you too. I mean, there's the great episode of Friends where the lovable characters can't understand why a downstairs neighbor hates them so much until after his death, they spend time in his apartment and they can hear what their lives sound like to him transmitted through their <laughs> ceiling uh, or his ceiling rather. And that's one of the examples of the wealth divide, I think, when it comes to silence. Interesting. And then there's the aspect of how much it costs to find um, tranquility. Yeah. So the New Scientist article and the various experts they quote make the point that just finding a few minutes of solitude will be beneficial to you. Uh, locking yourself in the bathroom for five minutes a, a day, for example, you know, most of us have the time and the resources to do that. It is mm. attainable. For most of us, though, having enough money to pay for a guide to help us through 15 minutes of silence in a park with music playing, that's yeah. not going to be realistic, either logistically or monetarily. Uh, one treatment that seems to benefit a lot of the people who try it are flotation tanks. You know, mm -hmm. these, originally they were sensory deprivation tanks. They're these dark, quiet environments where you float on a suspension of water and Epsom salts that are heated to body temperature. And, you know, you usually lie in them for about an hour. Have you, have you had a go in a flotation tank? I have indeed, uh, a couple of times. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, not, no, not, same. Not, not quite what I expected, but yeah, okay. Precisely. I mean, I've done it a, a couple of times and both times they were gifts as well. Mm. Uh, same, and same. Yeah, yeah, same, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So I have to admit, I was really fascinated to try them, but like you, I was a bit disappointed by mm. the, the overall experience. And I think that's 
you know, a lot of that's my own fault. I think it's, it's partly my own approach. I would get antsy and itchy. Um, I found actually that floating in a, a pool, a swimming pool or the sea in Malaysia is pretty similar, especially at night because the water is often pretty close to body temperature. Yeah. But the main reason I haven't experimented more with flotation sessions is that cost issue. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the, it, it has been shown that regular, like three times a week sessions in tanks can be beneficial, but the cost of that is you know, very off-putting. And it's not just because these are in, um, you know, quite exclusive clubs often that charge a lot of money for them. They are expensive to operate because the water you float on or in has to be pumped out and cleaned or replaced yeah. each time afterwards. The The actual tanks themselves, the machinery, the pumps, everything is expensive. And of course, how many people can that one tank serve in a day? Maybe half a dozen at most, probably more likely three or four. So mm. this becomes something that you can only routinely benefit from if you have a lot of, you know, disposable income and a lot of resources available. I, I suppose b before we wrap up then, I've, I've got a question that, you know, are local governments actually doing anything to help mitigate noise problems? Well, yeah, I mean, that's where we come back to those smart city evolutions like the Toronto Quayside that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, creating that, that green lung, that city forest that people can escape into, mm. that environment that's free of traffic, that's of benefit, creating pedestrian areas, softening the environment with sound absorbing materials rather than just having all those reflective glass service, uh, surfaces that amplify sounds. Uh, other cities have changed how airplanes use the skies above them uh, by decreasing the volume of overflights and increasing their height, for example. So there's less noise coming from the skies. Some cities have put in place bans on uh, leaf blowers and mowers, either entire bands or during certain periods of the day and night. Uh, there are other restrictions on limiting the amount of noise you can make at night. So there's uh, in Switzerland, for example, there's the courtesy of not flushing toilets between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. so that you what? don't. Uh, yeah. So that you don't disturb your, your neighbors. I've uh, never heard that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, a very long-standing one. Um, wow. There are things like uh, putting up noise screens along uh, busy urban roads, roads in residential zones. We're seeing a lot more of those in Malaysia, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, limiting commercial and goods traffic um, to certain areas to specific times of the day. Uh, and of course, there are all the, the kind of um, incentive-based approaches as well. So introducing congestion charges and increasing public transport, uh, switching to, to buses with quieter engines. I mean, th that's kind of a, a no-brainer, I guess. Uh, city managers are increasingly aware of the physical and social costs of noise, and they are moving to limit these kind of factors that create noise. Mm. But at that, that personal level, uh, we really have to experiment and find the types of silence that are available and that work for us, uh, going for the ones that are achievable. So that could be feeding the ducks in the park. It might be sitting quietly in the bathroom for 10 minutes a day and possibly avoiding anechoic chambers at 
all and every cost. <laughs> uh, thanks for that, Matt. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Rich. Uh, if you want to know more about the shows, you can go to culturepop.com or subscribe to uh, our newsletter on Substack. That's culturepop.substack.com. That's free, I should uh, point out. Um, two or three times a week, I just put out short things, uh, listing some of the stories we haven't had time to cover on these shows. And just listing some other kind of deep dive articles along the way and if you're interested in coming and seeing uh, me in a more live setting i will be moderating a couple of sessions at the minted uh, nft conference on the 27th of august you can find details of that on minted.asia there you go thank you right again Matt now if you missed any part of the show don't forget you can download it wherever you normally get it from we recommend the BFM app it's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play we'll be back same time same place next week for Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9 The Business Station listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.